Hello, and welcome to episode 18 of Foreign Correspondence, a podcast about journalists. I'm Jake Spring, a foreign correspondent with more than eight years' experience in Brazil and China. This week, I'm pleased to bring you an interview with someone in both a new country and publication that has not yet been featured on the podcast. I spoke to Diksha Madok, the editor leading the startup publication Quartz in India. Diksha has always been a talented reporter, being nominated for awards and whatnot, for thoughtful stories like the ones we'll discuss on Indian women in society. But she has never really envisioned herself being the traditional investigative, long-form reporter that most young idealistic journalism students do. Instead, she has been drawn to think about the broader questions of online news as an editor and leader in newsrooms. Things like how to guide newsroom coverage, whether by using readership statistics or deciding not to chase the big story every other publication is chasing to instead focus on more original reporting, or things like how the news is presented through her work launching apps and websites. I found the critical distance she brings, even to things like how she runs her own life, particularly striking. Please note you'll hear us reference something we call the Indian Citizenship Law. We don't really get into what it's all about, but suffice to say that India recently made it easier for religious minorities in neighboring countries to get Indian citizenship, while not extending the same consideration to Muslims. Needless to say, this has triggered a particularly strong backlash and protests in India. Also, you'll hear a lot of background noise on this because Diksha is out recording in the park. I think this actually really helps to give it a sense of place. You can almost picture all the activity around her in the New Delhi Park, where she is. So, without further ado, here's Diksha Madok, the editor for Quartz India. Thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you so much for inviting me. Uh, I heard so you, one that you did with Elaine, and I really enjoyed it. Oh, that's great. I forgot to ask if you'd listen to one, but you'll know more or less how it goes from that. So usually we start out with, if you could just tell me where you are, both geographically and what your surroundings are, and what your past week at work has been like. I am in New Delhi. It's a Sunday. It's evening here. It's not a polluted day today, so I'm out of the park while talking to you. And it's Republic Day, so this is the day that Indian constitution actually came into effect so you know because of the protests it's a big day for us today and yeah and my past week has been as a journalist there was this entire month has been pretty intense for journalists all over the country because of the protests against the Modi government uh, over the citizenship law and so there was a lot of work there's a lot of reporting there's a lot of pressure to be unbiased and to just present the truth especially on international media and yeah for a publication like Quartz, I mean, are you writing or people on your staff writing about it almost every day or what sort of reaction have you guys had to it? I, I don't know if you know about the fact that Quartz was actually acquired by a Japanese company called Usabase two years ago from Atlantic Media. And, oh, no, uh, I didn't know that. Yeah, so since then, the company's strategy has changed a little bit. So the focus of the company is almost entirely on the new global economy. And we don't write about politics the way Reuters or Washington Post etc. cover politics in other countries. We usually focus on business and economy, but these protests, they've had a huge economical impact also. So yes, the Quad staff in India has written a lot about it. And I think we will continue to write about it because the international audience is also interested in what's happening here from a business perspective as well. Sure, sure. Okay. And then, as you know, if you've listened to an episode, we take kind of a holistic approach on a person's life. So I guess before we get into more stories and what your work is now, let's start with where are you from and what was 
it like growing up there? And maybe a little bit about who the people were, were who raised you and how you were raised and things like that. I was born in Delhi. I spent some of my childhood years in the city of Mumbai, but most of my education was in Delhi. I think I had a pretty typical middle class upbringing in this city. I have seen this city change tremendously. I was born in the 80s and it's like I can't recognize that India and Delhi has changed just so much over the last 20 years. I think I'm probably the first person to become a journalist in my family because typically everyone from my family either became a doctor or an engineer because those were the hot professions in the 90s and early 2000 sure. in India. Yeah, so, but my parents were fairly supportive of my career choices. I studied journalism. I worked for around three years after graduating from university here and then I went to Columbia University for journalism school, after which I actually worked at your current organization, Reuters, for a couple of years in Delhi and then and I moved to quads. Sure. Are your parents either doctors or engineers? What do your parents do? My dad is an engineer and my mother is a teacher. She's retired now, but she used to be a teacher. Sure. And do you have brothers and sisters? My brother is an engineer, so he followed <laughs> the trajectory that was the safer path. But it's it's a fun life because I feel that as journalists, we often feel that we are doing something very creative and we're very passionate about our work, which is great. But because of my work and also because of my brother, I have an insight into how the startup world functions. And it seems that even coders can be super passionate. And it's like when they write code, they feel like they're writing poetry. I'm quite interested in writing more about the coding culture in India or about the community in India rather because they are also doing really exciting work but most of it is down south in Bangalore. Sure. I'm not familiar with how uh, the Indian education system works. Were you already interested in journalism in high school? Were there opportunities to do it then or when did you first get interested in journalism? In schools, I think things might have changed for the better now, but when I was in school, what, what you call high school, I think most people were encouraged either to become doctors or to become engineers. There are these engineering schools called IITs, which are very prestigious, and it was everybody's ultimate dream to get an admission in one of these schools. These are very competitive schools. There are some stats that say that it's probably tougher to get an admission here than into an Ivy League university. So you have to study a lot. I think most Indian teenagers who aspire to join these schools, they don't really have a life. I, in fact, did a story on coaching schools for Reuters where, you know, there are these cities whose entire economy depends on coaching schools, cram schools, as they're called in other countries, where teenagers are trained to clear these exams for IITs or other medical schools. And it's a really depressing world over there because I met this 17-year-old and he said that his girlfriend is physics. And chemistry is his, like, going to be his wife because he has no life. That's all he does. He studies 20 hours a day. So I think in India, we sort of, at least till 10 years ago, we sort of stripped teenage years of all fun, especially uh, in the middle <laughs> class community. It was super depressing to be a teenager. You had no time for fun things like video games or just dating or reading. Or In fact, I remember I was, I was always a passionate reader and I was always interested in literature, but it was not something that was encouraged in my high school years because you know everybody wanted me to stick to what was needed to clear 
these examinations. I, I did try to study for medical school, but then I realized very quickly that that's not something I'm interested in. And it's mm-hmm. only when I went to college, I was lucky enough to go to a really good college to study literature. That college is called Miranda House. It's part of University of Delhi. It's a women's only college. And I met some like really fierce, independent professors who helped shape my worldview. They taught me about feminism, about just taking control of my life, of my choices. So I'm, I'm really grateful that I chose to study there. And that's where I started getting interested in journalism. Sure. So the interest in reading led you to study literature and that got you there and thinking about journalism. Yes. And were you just thinking about it at that point? Did you start to write when doing your undergrad? Yeah. So when I was in University of Delhi, somebody, actually a former engineer started a university paper because the University of Delhi, I don't know if the situation has changed now, but at that time they didn't really have a university newspaper. So this person, he tried to start a newspaper for the university and I worked as a freelancer for it. And that's where I started getting interested in it. I did a few internships at Indian newspapers. I mean, Indian newspapers are still thriving. Like it's okay. I, I, I would probably not use this word thriving, but unlike the West, they're still doing well here. So there are, and there were lots of jobs at that time. I'm talking about when I was in university, that was like around 2006. And yeah, so I worked for them. Uh, I did a few internships and I realized that I do like this. And then I got a job at a political magazine called India Today. It's a fairly prestigious magazine here. Their focus is politics. I was covering education sector for them for around three years. And I worked with some really good editors at that point. And I realized that, you know, this could be a career. And that's why I decided to go to Columbia for journalism school. Sure. If you could just tell me, what what was it like going to Columbia? I decided to go because I could have gone to a journalism school in India as well. I don't think I had to go to a journalism school because I already had a job, a fairly decent job, and I could have like risen up the ladder if I had stayed in India. So I wanted to go to Columbia because I wanted some international exposure and see uh, what people in other countries are doing. And also, this is a time when there was a lot of... I'm sorry, I hope you can't hear the dogs. In the yeah, background. no, I can. Um, I just hope they don't continue the entire hour. It'll be a bit much, but uh, if it's just now and then, it's all good. No worries. Yeah, so there's a delivery man, so they're just chasing him, oh, so I think okay. they should quiet down in a while. Don't worry about it. So I decided to go because I wanted some international exposure. Also, I got a scholarship. I don't think I could have paid to go to Columbia. And that was my first time in New York. That was my first time in the U.S., actually. I enjoyed the experience. I enjoyed New York City a lot. I made some great friends. I think the school taught me how to network. It also made me more confident and more aware of international media. I think I learned more about reporting, editing, writing, all of those things on the job than I did in the school. But there were some other intangible benefits that I gained from my experience there. Sure. And did you have a specific concentration at Columbia or how does that work? Yeah, I actually chose broadcast journalism over there. And then it was so weird. Like, I, I don't know, maybe it was the... I think the American news culture, at least the nightly news culture, was something that was a bit intense for me. So I decided that I probably don't want to pursue broadcast after graduating. But at that point, I I chose broadcast news only because I thought that I'll be learning something new since I was already part of the print magazine culture in India. Sure, that Um, makes sense. But I didn't really enjoy it much. Did you have to do like a big final project? and, And what was that? 
I did one project, but I chose to do uh, the project that I did was actually text. It was a long form story. And at that point, I wrote about the LGBTQ communities from South Asia in New York. This was a time when homosexuality was still illegal in most South Asian countries. India recently decriminalized it. They, they did it only last year, but most other countries like Bangladesh, Pakistan, etc., uh, it, it's still a criminal offense over there. So I focused on, on the South Asian community over there, how they feel about this. Also, uh, I focused a lot on illegal people who probably didn't have citizenship in the U.S. and they can't really go back to their country or their parents' country anymore because you know they won't be allowed to marry who they want to marry or love who they want to love. So that's a project I worked on for a few months. Wow, sounds interesting. Um, did it get published somewhere? Yeah, I really enjoyed it. I wasn't very smart about it because I could have got it published because later on I realized that there was a lot of interest in it. But while I was graduating, I was just so focused on figuring out when to move back, what kind of job I should have when I moved back to Delhi that I just forgot to send it to editors. I, I still regret it. I think I, I worked for like four months on it, so I could have, I think uh, I think it made for a good read. Yeah, sounds like a very interesting story. And then, so out of college, is that when you go into uh, Reuters? Yes, so I got... Or out of a, your master's degree, I should say, not college, but go ahead. Yeah, master's degree. I got a scholarship when I was at Columbia. It's, I forget the name, Overseas Press Scholarship. I think I'll, I'll get the name for you. So that award was given to me in December and they connected me to some wires, the organizers. Reuters, AP, etc. At that point, AP didn't really have a big presence in India. So I always knew that I want to go back to India after my degree. So from December onwards, the program ended in uh, May. So in December, I started looking for jobs. So luckily, Reuters had an opening in New Delhi. So as soon as I was back in India, I started working in June with Reuters. What was your beat? When I'd gone to Colombia, everybody was really, really focused on digital media, even though I chose broadcast. That's what uh, Ellen also studied, digital media. And Reuters had an opening on the digital desk. So I thought that I would be doing a lot of things that I had learned at Columbia, social media, how to put together video packages or how to do multimedia. But the job was a bit disappointing at that time because I feel that mainstream organizations like Reuters, etc., they still didn't know what digital media is. It involved a lot of curation for the website, but I don't think they pushed the envelope like the way organizations such as BuzzFeed or Quads or Vox, etc. were doing in the U.S. So I was not really happy uh, with the job, but I did learn a lot about financial journalism while at Reuters. So you were mostly curating for online or were you doing much reporting or? So my job was to curate for online, but I started writing for The Wire as well alongside and the editors were quite supportive, but it's just that I used to cover general and political news while I was at Reuters. I did a lot of education related stories because I had experience covering education from my previous job, but it's just disappointing that they didn't really do much work when it came to multimedia in India. So like video. So it was just like tradition. And, yeah, yeah, videos, photos, or just like figuring out how to write for an audience, you know, that's actually reading on the phone. I mean, I know this is this is 2011, 12, so probably not many people were reading on their phones. But, you know, even if you're reading online, you just write differently for an online audience. And I think that awareness wasn't there, at least then. I also felt it was really different from my previous job, which was at an Indian organization. Whatever I was writing for, say, an American audience, mostly it was a, like we were told, think of 
Asian American audience when you're writing. And I felt that mm-hmm. the way we wrote for an American audience, I thought it was a bit problematic. The way we sometimes tried to describe this vast, complex country and the kind of context that we gave. I thought that it didn't do justice to the story. I thought the language was problematic at times. And I feel it, it's a problem not just with wires. It's something that affects a lot of foreign organizations in India. I, I'm glad that now that conversation has actually started in those newsrooms as well. So those were some of the issues I had while I was working there. Even though I was learning a lot, I felt that this is probably not how I want to read or write about my country. I also thought sometimes I felt that in the newsroom, there was this like extreme sort of disdain towards local media, what they call local media. But they were also relying mm-hmm. so heavily on local media for stories because it was like, you know, something was covered in a local newspaper and then Reuters journalists would come and they would investigate it. Also, the kind of stories that they chose to cover, that old stereotype, like, okay, if less than 50 Indians have died, it's probably not a story. That sort of a thing felt a bit true in in such newsrooms. I mean, it could be that, you know, I was very young. I was not really part of the leadership team. I was not making these decisions. So I could be, I'm probably not giving you all the facts and I could be a little biased, but I did feel that they would probably not cover a developed country that way. And I guess that's the nature of news. Yeah, yeah, and it can be challenging to sum up everything that's going on in a country as an outsider. But then again, uh, most of the reporters in the India uh, bureaus are Indian, is that right? Or were there a lot of foreigners? Yeah, so that was also odd because I felt that most of the reporters were Indian, but a lot of the editors were not Indian. So in fact, they would sometimes send editors who didn't really know that much about India. So I just didn't understand why they didn't trust Indians with more senior roles when it came to the bureau chief role or when it came to whatever, the Delhi head or Bombay head roles. It's like, why more of these roles didn't go to Indian journalists? I still wonder sometimes because like Indians, in the, when it comes to writing skills or when it comes to language skills, I feel India is one of those few countries where you can find enough English speakers, writers. There are also a lot of people who have studied in some of the best journalism schools of the world. And I guess this is like one of those discussions. Do you still parachute journalists from other countries or do you like, do you have more Indians in leadership roles? in such newsrooms. How will that affect or change the way they cover uh, such countries? Right. I'm not too familiar with uh, the India Bureau right now, but uh, hopefully it's getting better. Yeah. I'm pretty sure it's changing now. So for all those reasons you mentioned, I imagine you were looking outside of Reuters for other opportunities. Can you walk me through your next several positions, I guess, explaining what each one was and each move up until you got the job you're in now? So I left Reuters and I took a break from journalism for a year. I moved to the southern Indian state of Kerala and I worked with the I I don't know if you're familiar with Bangalore, but Bangalore is where a lot of big startups in India are based. It's like the Silicon Valley of India. So there was a project a few years ago where they wanted to make Kerala the next Bangalore, city of Cochin, the next next Bangalore and have a lot of technology companies move there. So I was part of that project for a few months, but then I missed journalism. So I came back to Delhi and I started freelancing for a while. I think I freelanced for about two months. And then this is around the time of the Indian elections in 2014 when Modi won for the first time. And that is the year that Quartz was launching in India. And I knew a senior editor at Quartz. Her name is, at that point, she was at Quartz. Now she's with CNN. Her name is Mitra Kalita. I'd met her at Columbia. So I wrote to her saying that I'm interested in, if you have a job for a reporter, I'm I'm interested in joining. And then it just worked out. So I joined Quartz then as a reporter. It was a brilliant experience because, you know, they trusted the team in India to cover India the way they want to do it. They were also very fresh with their storytelling 
storytelling techniques because they were actually writing for the mobile phone. So the way they covered news, how they covered news was very different. It was, it was really a fun experience. Mm-hmm. And then within six months, I was promoted to the position of editor. And that allowed me to shape how Quartz covers India. This is also a time when the startup industry in India was booming. It was We were seeing the emergence of unicorns, of companies like Flipkart, etc. So there was a lot to cover. And I think we did a fairly good job of covering those type of companies. We also started covering stories that probably other business papers were not putting on their front pages. Like, why are Indian women not working? Why, why aren't there enough Indian women in the boardroom, etc.? Yeah, so I did that for around three years. After that, I joined another media startup in India. It's called The Print.in. They're a bit like political, so they cover politics. And okay. uh, it's a very exciting new company. They started in 2017. It was started by this person called Shikhar Gupta, who's a very well-respected journalist in India. And he hired a lot of well-known bylines from other newspapers across the country and then they had raised a decent amount of money so there was a lot of positive buzz about the startup and Shekhar wanted me to because most of the people whom he had hired were from newspapers so he wanted me to work with them and help you know write for this this was online it's a website so he wanted me to then transition to digital and to help with the editorial strategy and that was a super fun experience because A, I got a chance to work with some really, really well-known journalists in the country. B, I also got a chance to be in, you know, leadership position while at a very young age with journalists who had worked for several years and it was a, for me personally, it was a great experience because I realized that age doesn't matter. People listen. If you make sense, you know, even though they'd been doing some things in a certain way for the last 30 years, they were listening to what I was saying they were listening to my ideas they were adapting and I was learning a lot about political journalism in India I mean I'm glad I did that so I did that for almost two years and then I moved back to Quartz after the acquisition because as I said Quartz changed as a company so they moved behind the paywall so they are now experimenting with subscription and they wanted to launch an app in their major markets so they hired me to see if I can launch the app in India and I really like launching things so yeah <laughs> That's great. So that was just fun. When did yeah, the so app we launch? In December. Okay. In India, we launched in December. And this is a separate, discrete app from, say, the Quartz app that people would use in North America? They've removed all the other older versions of the app. Now, there's just one app. So if you open the app in North America, you'll see the North American version of the app, which means that you'll see more uh, North America-related stories. If you open it in UK, you'll have more UK-related stories. And if you open it in India, you'll have more India stories. They have four editions, Africa, India, UK, and US. So a lot of like 60% of the journalism that you see on the app is Quartz's original journalism. But we also pull in stories from other major publications like Reuters or Bloomberg or, uh, you know, TechCrunch, etc., something that would be interesting to our audiences. And, and it also has a uh, commenting functionality built in. Cool. So I see, I was just looking on LinkedIn, your title is editor and director of platform for Quartz India. So you're both editor in terms of you're directing the editorial coverage and you're involved in some of the technical side of how the news is put out on apps and things like that. Is that how your job works or could you just give me a rundown of what all your duties are? Yes, editorially, I look over what goes on the platform, what kind of stories we are picking, what we are highlighting. So we have launched something called 
called the Pro Program. So there's something called Quartz Pros. These are people who are actually shaping the new global economy all over the world. So this could be someone like Richard Branson, or it could be you know a NASA astronaut, or maybe the person behind Accenture. So we have recruited these people. We have hand selected these people as Quartz Pros. They are a bit like what you call influencers on other social media platforms. So I had to recruit Quartz India pros. So I also have to communicate with them on a regular basis. I also handle the community because the app has a commenting functionality built in. And also I work closely with the product team to help figure out what might work for the Indian market. Cool. And how big is the staff and what is it like being a boss? So we have around nine, almost 10 people. And it's a very flat organization. Like I know like a lot of people like to think of their company as flat and non-hierarchical, but like I feel that Quartz is, at least in India, where you know, we just hear everyone out. It's a very different being a boss in a company like Quartz as opposed to being a boss in, say, some Indian organizations because they are very hierarchical. Yeah, there's no glass cabin or anything of that sort. It's just, you know, we just all get along really well. We have a really smart team here. And yeah, I I don't really know how to answer that question because I haven't really thought of myself as a boss. Sure. Well, how about what do you think about the differences between being an editor and being a reporter slash writer? And do you see yourself as being an editor going forward? Okay. So I think as an editor, I can shape the coverage. So I feel that I was lucky enough to shape the coverage in an organization like Quads, especially in its early years. And like I mentioned earlier, we started focusing on things that other business papers we're not focusing on and uh, that is a very powerful feeling that you can actually tell your reporters to not cover something that all other business reporters are covering but instead chase this development and I think uh, because you know in the early days of the internet journalism in India I'm talking about 2014-15 and I think internet really rewarded you when you went for something yeah. different when you covered something that traditional papers were not covering when you had a fresh voice and as an editor I got the opportunity to discover really good talent, really good writers, freelancers. And I also think that there weren't too many women who were able to shape the coverage of a newsroom that is mostly focused on tech and business. I think that that makes a lot of difference. And I'm glad I got that opportunity. And yeah, it makes sense being able to more direct the coverage to the places where you think it can make the most difference. And yeah, I, I was the editor of a magazine briefly. Yeah, in journalism, it's kind of, I don't know, I feel like you have to make a decision between one or the other. You can't have it both ways. Yeah. So for now, I'm sticking with reporting and maybe maybe later I'll be an editor. But I do miss reporting. So I, I understand where you're coming from because I, I do miss reporting. I do miss being on the field and just writing every day or every week. I do write three, four times a month right now. And luckily at Quartz, I'm able to choose oh, really unconventional areas to write about. I don't cover a beat anymore. I sometimes miss that, but I'm very happy with the role I have right now also, because I think that is a very unconventional role. I don't see anyone else doing that. I mean, I know people are doing new things in Indian journalism, but very few people have this type of role. And over the past few years, I think I've been very, very lucky to help the founding teams of startups and do really interesting 
interesting things and also things that really actually made a difference to those organizations. Yeah, and it's great you still get to write now and then. Three or four yeah, times a month uh, is still plenty in my book. Yeah, I mean, I hope I can probably write every week. I'm still trying to figure it out because after the launch, there's a lot of work. But yeah, so my goal is to like at least write once a week. Sure. That's what and, I learned uh, from I, my previous boss at the print. That's what I learned. Okay. Like I try to write every week. So Cool. And that's a good segue to maybe let's start to talk about a couple of different stories you've done. So I guess usually, so we don't end on a down note, I usually start <laughs> with a story that quote unquote got away, a story that didn't go right, that either you had the idea and you could never execute on it because you couldn't convince editors, you couldn't prove it, whatever reason that got in the way. So, I mean, sometimes just procrastination or I don't know, a reporting trip that went bad or it can really be whatever just to show some of the difficulties in reporting does anything come to mind so i when i was at reuters in the december of 2012 i i don't know if you remember December 16, there was this horrific gang rape of a woman in a bus in New Delhi. She was gang raped by six men and then she ultimately died. And that became a huge, massive story in India. It also sparked protests all over the country, but specifically in Delhi. And I think it led to some profound changes in the way we talk about gender, in the way our law looks at women's safety. And that was a big moment in Indian history when it comes to women's rights. And I wish I had had the opportunity to report more then. I couldn't report more then because I had other responsibilities in my job. And also, I didn't have hostile environment training. And Reuters required everyone to have that training before covering a protest. So because I felt that this issue was something that affected me both professionally and personally. I wanted to see how I will cover a story that I feel so personally affected by. And I would actually go and participate in almost all the protests, but I couldn't really participate in the reporting of that story because I didn't have that hostile environment training. Sure. And, and looking back at how it was covered by publications then, do you think there was any aspects that were lacking about how other publications were covering it? I think a lot of publications did a really good job. I had not seen a story covered this extensively by both Indian and international media before. And what is the situation now in India? Because I remember around that time that I think like the U.S. was warning its citizens to not necessarily travel in many parts of India and things like that. And there was kind of a big scare over these type of sexual assaults and attacks. Has yes. it gotten any better since then? Or is this still a huge problem? It's much better. In fact, to go back to your earlier question about if there were any problems with the way other publications covered it, I think some activists in India felt, and I sometimes agree with them, that they uh, tried to show rape as friendly an India problem during that time. And that mm -hmm. felt that it was probably not the right narrative. A lot of these people felt like these were women who were actually participating in the protest. They were at the forefront of the protest. But they also felt that framing it rape as an India problem is very misleading. But I mean, I'm not denying the fact that Delhi used to be and still is not the safest city for women. But since 2012, things have really changed for the better in a lot of areas. I see women moving around freely, like even late in the night. The public transport system, the Delhi Metro, has changed a lot of things. So, you know, you, you see young women going out, working at all hours. This was still rare 10 years ago. I see women wearing whatever they want now, the rise of social media, uh, Instagram, TikTok. TikTok is very popular here. And, you know, you see people from all over the city now just 
wearing whatever it is that they want, women wearing whatever it is that they want. That's huge. I think it has a lot of problems, but it's it's a fun city. You should come. Yeah, I'd love to go to India. It's a bit overwhelming. It's a bit like China where I lived. And it's if you don't live there, it just seems like so much to try to see. I always felt like I would yeah. need to take a, at least a month to go. But I'll make Completely. it uh, sooner or later. So when I, so I never really understood why people were sort of intimidated by the idea of India. But then when I went to China, I was overwhelmed by China because I didn't speak the language and everything was so new. And the popular culture that I'm exposed to doesn't really, it's either Indian or Western. So everything was so new to me. And yeah, that's when I realized how people would feel when they come to India for the first time. Yeah. Did you just go as a tourist to China? Yeah, I actually went to visit Helen. Oh, okay, cool. Back when she was at AP? When she was at AP uh, in Beijing. Okay, cool. So I'm sure you went to many of the same haunts that uh, I went to back when I lived there. Yeah, Uh, it was amazing. The food was just, I still dream about the food sometimes. Yeah, I miss the food a lot. So you you knew a line from Colombia, is that right? Yes, from Colombia. She's like she's one of my closest friends from Colombia. Okay, great. Yeah, no, it's uh, the interview with Elaine was great. One of my most listened to ones, and it sounds like her project. I mean, it's an amazing project. She's getting go all over Afghanistan, Central America. It's crazy. She's a really incredible video journalist. I haven't met someone as hardworking as she is. I was going to ask, did you ever catch the bug to try to be a correspondent outside of India? Uh, I did think about this when I was at Quartz because there were a lot of opportunities at other Quartz bureaus, but I think it never really happened because there was always so much happening in India. There's so much to cover and the journalism industry here, like I feel that it's slowing down everywhere else in the world, but in India is just so much happening in terms of news, in terms of new companies to work for that I never really fully explored that option. And maybe I will one day. Yeah, India, my sense is, I mean, you still have very competitive media still have publications that sometimes have huge newsrooms. There's still a lot of funding to cover the news and a lot of interesting things happening all the time. I mean, it wasn't so long ago that everybody was going crazy over the Kashmir situation and the citizenship law. And Yeah, it's it's never a good moment. Right, right. So there's so much to do here. And I feel that there are a lot of experiments that have worked in the West and also like India has now started looking at China. At least startups have started looking at what's happening in China. And there are a lot of experiments that have worked there. And it's interesting to see if any of those experiments can work in India. So I feel that the market has a lot of potential here. But yeah, one day I would love to be a foreign correspondent. I think my reporting skills are still there. So hopefully it can happen. Sure. So then, yeah, let's talk about a story that you did that you're proud of. If you could just walk me through the entire process from getting the idea how reporting went writing it, reaction, if there was any, the first story comes to mind. So I'm, um, I'm really interested in covering jobs and how Indians work. And a few years ago, I was obsessed with figuring out why there aren't enough Indian women in the workforce. So India is one of those peculiar countries where even though we are becoming wealthier and more educated, middle class, upper middle class, rich women in India are not working. They're not part of the white collar workforce, even though they're way more educated than their mothers or grandmothers ever were. So one of the stories that I did around this theme was, remember the, the engineering colleges I mentioned earlier, IITs? These sure. are like years version of Ivy League universities. So these, these universities also have a very poor gender ratio. There are a few uh, IITs around the country. When I did this story, most of them had less than 10% of their student population was, was 
female. So I wanted to figure out what happened to the few women who actually went to the IITs in the late 80s and the early 90s. And where are they now? Mm -hmm. So are they still part of the workforce? What happened to them? I thought that this could answer the puzzle about why women are dropping out of the workforce despite having great education. I felt that was one of the most important stories that I've done. It was a bit hard to track down these women, but I managed to find a few of them. And once, you know, they connected me to their friends or their batchmates, and they were really forthcoming about their experiences in the workforce, whether it was in India or U.S., and yeah, I was I was super happy that I was able to execute that story. Were that's, that's most the, of them still working when you found them? Or? Most of them were actually not working when I found them for various reasons. I felt that they were also rejecting the whole idea of what success looks like, what professional success means to them as opposed to what it meant to men. They, they didn't subscribe to the same idea. For a lot of women, I feel it was similar to what happens in the West. Most women end up dropping out of their careers because of motherhood. And, you know, Indian men really don't do household work. They do like the least amount of household work in the world, whether they are PhDs or whether they are high school graduates. They just don't help women. So most Indian companies, even now, don't have good childcare support policies. And I think through that story, I was able to shed light on some of these important issues. So, yeah. And it was a story for Quartz or for which publication? It was a story for Quartz. Okay. And what sort of reaction did it get? So, uh, at an organization like Quartz, I don't know if this happens at Reuters, you're able to see audience engagement numbers, etc. So, this was... Mm -hmm. In terms of engagement, I had never seen this type of engagement on any other story that we had done in India before. It really resonated with a lot of people. It got really good reaction on social media, but it was also nominated for a couple of awards. I didn't win anything ultimately, but I felt good that it made it there. And, oh, that's uh, great. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I felt really good about that story. And then the other story was also sort of similar. I did this a few years ago. Uh, I did it under Obama administration. I wrote about Indian housewives in the U.S. So I'm sure everyone knows this by now. A lot of people who go to the U.S. on H-1B visa are actually Indians. I was just going to say my parents' apartment building in Minneapolis is many, many, many Indians on those visas working for tech companies. Yeah. Exactly. The laws have changed a little bit now, but even now, most of the people who are spouses of H-1B visa holders, who most most of them from India happen to be men, they are on H, the, the H-4 visa is the spouse visa, and you're not allowed to work on that visa. So a lot of these women, they were like highly educated, highly accomplished, even ambitious women who held good jobs in India, but they couldn't work in the U.S. And it's it gets really depressing because, you know, to a lot of people back home, it seems that you're living the American dream. You have an apartment, you have a house, etc. But you're completely dependent on your husband for everything you can't. So a lot of these women were battling depression. They had lost all their confidence. It was some of them, if they were in bad marriages, they were stuck. And that story also got really good response. So it was featured on some of the lists about like, this is this is the essay that you should read uh, this month, etc. So I felt good about that story. And also that story felt really important because most people in India feel that, okay, you know, if you, if you go to the US and if you've managed to marry someone who's working there, then you've arrived, that's a good life. But I thought this was a really important issue that, you know, you, you, you sometimes struggle with your, you know, basic sanity if you're not able to work. 
in these countries because you have no other social life. You're completely dependent on your husband. Right. And in terms of reporting, I mean, I imagine was this all done over the phone and was it difficult to get people to open up that way, especially when it could involve criticizing uh, their situation or their husband? Was that difficult or were you, was it easy to find people? I actually did most of the reporting in New York. Uh, and I went to New Jersey also oh, okay. for this story. And a lot of Indians in New Jersey, I spent a couple of days there and, you know, they just opened up very easily. I think they were really frustrated. They really, really wanted to talk about this also. And yeah, it's like some women were very happy that they didn't have to live with their mother-in-law in India. So that's also something that I tried to bring out in the story. But most women were quite unhappy because this this is a different generation. They, they have different ambitions, etc. And I mean, most of these workers on temporary visas, the H-1B visas, it doesn't lead to a longer term visa. I don't think once it's up, they have to go back. Is that correct? So it's not like, you know, it would eventually lead to a permanent green card or something. And then the the wife could eventually do work. That That isn't how it works, is it? You can keep getting your H-1B renewed. And so I, I spoke to couples who had been living there for 10 years or even more. So now the rules change a little bit and if you're on the path to the green card you can work in the u.s but even that takes a long time but also the bigger problem is that once you've been out of the workforce for three four years and you're in a foreign country it's really hard to get back so even when when these women do get green cards they're just i think too much time has passed and it's hard for them to update their skills to network sometimes they have children and one of the things that i realized while reporting on the story is how hard it is to be a working parent in the u.s also in a developed country like that because everything is so expensive. In India, you can still afford a nanny on a middle-class engineering income, but I'm, I'm assuming that's like sort of very hard in the U.S. And you don't have any family support. Your social support is limited. In parts of India, it's still like that whole philosophy of like it takes a village to bring up a child is still true, but you don't have that in the U.S. because, you know, you just moved there or you don't have enough friends. So it's really hard for these women to get back into the workforce, even if they get a green card. Anyway, getting a green card once you're on the H-1B, getting a green card can take like, I don't know, decades. And I was going to say, because you can see through all the statistics how your stories do on Quartz and these other platforms, Reuters, that's still a bit limited, honestly. It's not the same situation. So I was curious. Yeah. I spoke to Lindsay Schutel, who was working for Quartz and for several years, and she said she found it very stressful always knowing how your stories did. And she did some great stories, but she said you could kind of burn out because you always have to feed the beast. Um, yes. I guess I'm just curious how you feel about always knowing how you're doing, always knowing the numbers, always being compared to every other story. How do you feel about that? Uh, internet is a really, really unforgiving place and it feels like you're always on the treadmill. But these kind of stats are also very empowering because you can sometimes justify why you are chasing a story that no other publication is using these stats. So for instance, initially when I decided to start covering women in the workforce, like a few years ago, not many people wanted to cover this because they thought that there is no market for this. But I could then use these stats to justify why this should be a bead or why we should focus on this. So I think, well, data is how you use it. I think from a reporter's point of view, it can be super stressful because sometimes, you know, you do a story in half an hour and it gets you some millions of clicks that you labor over a story for two weeks and you'll realize that hardly anyone is reading it. Sure. So that, that 
is kind of brutal. As an editor, I found it very useful. It would help me figure out the coverage plan. Of course, the danger is that, like, for instance, if I just follow these numbers, I would just write about Bollywood all the time, right? Because that's <laughs> that's what people want to read. So it's like you have to take these numbers with a pinch of salt, and you need. to still focus on stories that you feel are important but these numbers also help you figure out how you can frame these stories in a way that more people care about them right makes sense okay so next we'll do the lightning round which is kind of more fast paced questions do you feel ready yes okay what is a must read publication that you look at almost every day quotes Oh, and it can't be quotes, sorry. <laughs> oh, it can't be quotes. So, uh, I read Bloomberg every day, and also Reuters. Okay, and any Indian publications? I do uh, visit the print dot in almost every day. Cool, and is that because those type of publications might give you ideas for quotes, or why those ones? Oh, okay, the print I visit it because I feel that they do stories that I don't find in a lot of other publications. Reuters and Bloomberg, because I think once I open it in the morning, it gives me a good sense of what's happening in. the world and the business world and that's what the focus is for me when it comes to the app sure and then what is a journalistic publication but could be tv radio podcast article print that you read listen to or watch just for fun just for fun i really like this newsletter by new york times smarter living oh okay sure it's like uh, what exactly is it you know there's a lot of positive psychology and how to have work life balance in your life so cool tips about how to be a happier person like just have some balance in your life so it could be a lot of positive psychology it could be some you know like for instance why you should use a bullet journal or how you can do a digital detox stuff like that and then what's the best journalistic article clip piece again whatever medium that you've consumed recently and it can't be from quartz so i really like the piece by uh, alan berry who used to be the former new york times bureau chief to india she wrote a piece last year it was published a couple of months ago for new york times it's called the jungle prince of delhi and it's about oh this, yeah yeah it's a really long piece i think she reported it over years and it's just fabulous reporting fabulous writing and it actually uncovered a mystery that a lot of foreign correspondents actually have puzzled over for decades now it's about this royal family that lived in the heart of delhi you know in a jungle in delhi and they claimed to be a royal family and like they were completely cut off from the rest of the world and once every year or once every two years they would meet a journalist and the journalist was always a foreigner they would never meet an indian journalist and they would talk about their plight how the indian government is not treating them properly how they haven't got their dues since independence so she just uncovered that this family was actually lying about everything uh, okay and, need, and, and yet she struck yeah it's a beautiful story and yet she struck a friendship with the last surviving member of that family the prince and it's a tragic story but i was just stunned that somebody could you know exist like this in delhi yeah that's crazy so yeah, I've, i've spent all my life in delhi and even for me it was just shocking and it was just beautifully written i remember it made it quite a stir when it came out i'll have to check it out and then is there any particular subject matter you read into that isn't specifically related to your job i try to read a lot about personal finance these days not because i enjoy it but because like, i just want to understand that world better so i try to take out some time every week now to read and research that area sure let's see 
And then how do you manage your work-life balance? And is work-life balance something you believe in? Since last year, yes. <laughs> I think I started suffering from some sort of a short-term memory loss because I was always on Twitter or Facebook or, you know, always glued to my phone. And my new year resolution was to get two phones and delete Twitter and all the news apps from one of the phones. And that's the phone I uh, usually use when I'm not working. So that sure. has changed my life dramatically. I feel like now I'm able to read one book a week. And this is something I haven't done since before Columbia. I wish I had done this years ago. And I don't think it has affected my work in any way, not being on Twitter or news apps or social media. But it has made me a better reader. And in fact, it has given some balance to my life. Wow, that's that's great. Uh, do, what do you do with the, your work phone then? Do you, when you get home, do you put it in a drawer? Do you turn it off? How, how do you do, yeah. deal with that? I turn it off. I don't keep it next to my bed. So Twitter is not the first thing I'm seeing when I wake up in the morning. And also the new phone that I have that I use for my personal life, it's, it's not a very advanced phone. It's a really clunky, cheap phone that I have. So I don't really feel like using it much. And the other phone, I just keep it away from me. I just keep it away from my bed or from where I sit and read. When I go and hang out with my friends, I don't carry that phone. So it's still something that I'm getting used to. My friends are still glued to their phones when we are meeting for drinks or dinner, but I try to have an old-fashioned conversation. Yeah, I should probably consider something like that. I would just be curious as somebody who's in charge, I mean, do you worry about missing things or do people know that if it's really important just call you on this other phone or how do you deal with that anxiety so I guess of, if you have that so most of my team knows that they can call me uh, whenever there's something big also it just so happens that all my friends are journalists so if I'm hanging out with them and if something big happens that's what I've realized that it's not as if news is reaching me late just because it's not on my phone luckily Quartz is a company which is not in the business of breaking news so that I can mix this sort of a transition easily I feel like if you work for a company like Reuters, Bloomberg, and if you are on the breaking news desk, then your life is very different. But so far, there hasn't been any consequence, any any adverse consequence of this. But it, it hasn't even been a month. I started on 1st of Jan. Still, uh, that's so great. Really, you know, trying to achieve a balance. Yes, it makes healthy. a huge difference. And then the next question is, is Twitter important to you? Uh, there was a time for a few months last year that I was addicted to Twitter. I don't tweet that much myself. Like I usually just tweet about quads or my work, but I was following everyone else obsessively on Twitter. But I realize now that it can be a pretty toxic place. It can be a useful place also if you take it in small doses. But if you just stay on it, it can be a pretty toxic place. Also, other people's opinions start becoming your opinions once you are on Twitter and you're not able to step back and reflect and read and inform yourself. I don't think it's healthy being there because you don't know what whether you're saying something because that dude with you know one million followers has said it or whether you actually believe and you've reached an informed decision about a particular situation and i feel like whether you're a liberal or whether you're right wing you're like equally bad on twitter it just encourages <laughs> people to be bad Right. And there's something about the absolutism of the numbers. If you have more followers, if you have more retweets, if you have more, it's this, exactly. you know, you're chasing this thing that should you be chasing? Does it really mean anything? You know, some horrible people have plenty of followers. So, yeah. yeah. What I like about the new app that I'm working on is that it doesn't try to gamify journalism, yet it tries to encourage conversation between journalists and readers. So, 
I like that approach, but I, I can see why people get hooked on to Twitter, but I'm glad that I made this decision to step away from it. It's still very important to me. It's, you know, our, our prime minister talks mainly through Twitter now. So it's something that I can't really delete uh, from my life, but I would urge other journalists to also consider using it in small doses. Next question. If you had to trade places with one journalist living or dead and you would have their career, who would it be and why? I don't know. I, I think I'm okay uh, being who I am. I uh, <laughs> probably don't want to trade faces with someone else mainly because I feel this is a really good time to be a journalist, to be a woman journalist in India. It's there are a lot of opportunities. Newsrooms are becoming more equal. You know, India is a very exciting place economically, politically. So I I like the fact that I'm a journalist here right now, at this point in sure. you know, history. Sure. Is there anybody in particular you, whose career you admire, I guess, not necessarily trade places with, but who you look up to? So there are a lot of journalists I like to read regularly. I really like the person who started the print, Shekhar Gupta. I think he's always been a reporter at heart and I mean he has had a really successful as an editor as well but I like the way how he has always managed to stick to reporting and writing alongside. I, I really liked how Alan Berry covered India for New York Times. I thought she's a beautiful writer, the one who wrote the Jungle Prince piece. Right. And she did some really great stories for the New York Times in India, especially about women in the workforce. And I thought she had a really fresh eye. Like, I felt that she was different from most foreign correspondents I have seen in India. Like, I have not seen a voice like that. It, it was like, she's just a very inspiring reporter, journalist, and writer. Great. The name of the first, the uh, founder of the print, it Shekhar was Gupta. Uh, Shekhar Gupta. Shekhar. S-H-E-K-H-A-R. Cool. I'll have to look him up. Okay. And then what do you think you bring to the table that makes you a good journalist? I like to think that I am I'm pretty nimble with new formats and new ideas. So what I realized was that you could be a great reporter, but this is such a turbulent time in our industry that you have to change very quickly. You have to adapt very quickly, whether it's to new technology, new formats or new ways of storytelling or just like, you know, new management styles. And I feel like so far in my career, I've been able to do that very well. And uh, I also think as a journalist, while I love to report and write, I also think about the product. I also think about things like, okay, how are we going to make money? Like, I, I, I try to look at the bigger picture, and I feel that's one of my strengths. I think that right now, the way our industry is, the way the economy is, and the way like all the newsrooms are trying to figure out revenue models, I think this can be a strength in the future. Definitely. It's more and more necessary and a good skill to have in the leader of a publication. Definitely. Let's see. And then the next question, what is one thing you wish you could travel back in time and tell your younger self? When I was graduating from Columbia, it was, uh, well, it was a bad economy and it was all over the world. This is just a few years after the Lehman Brothers crash. I wanted to do something new. I wanted to do something different. I didn't really want to be a traditional reporter. And that is something that everyone around me was aiming to be. And I think that I would tell my younger self that it's okay to want to be something different, to take risks. And like, I think the peer pressure really gets to you. And I would probably tell that person to not worry about that. 
So like everybody wanted to be, I would guess, you know, the pure reporter writing exactly. long form story, investigative stories, that sort yes. of thing. Yeah, exactly. And I, I think while I enjoyed doing that, whenever I got an opportunity to do it, I felt that I had skills to do something else as well. And I feel that it's okay to be unconventional. I mean, it sounds very cliche, but that's exactly what I would tell my younger self because I was really, really guilty. Uh, I felt really guilty in those years because I didn't want to be an investigative reporter and I, I just wanted to build something that was different from other platforms that existed. Sure. And then what is one thing that most people don't know about you? I think most people don't know a lot of things about me because I try to not share too much on social media. I think what I just said that I never really wanted to be an investigative reporter. Most people don't know that about me. Sure. It's a very journalism school thing. <laughs> I think yeah. that's what everybody wanted. You know, it sounds like such an ideal. And I, I do think people, I mean, having done some longer term investigations, I know they can also be extremely painful to do. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think a lot of people don't don't really factor that yeah. in. Yeah, people just see the glamour, but I think it requires a certain skill set that not everyone has. Right. What is your favorite film, book, TV, or other media property about journalists and why? Uh, so I, I heard this question in, I think, Ellen's podcast also, and I felt that I don't really enjoy movies or shows about journalists because I'm always very critical. I, I, I keep thinking this is not how it happens. I uh, analyze these things too much. I did enjoy Spotlight because I like the way they treated that subject and it was an important story. I enjoyed Newsroom because it was entertaining, but it was like, I don't think that's how things happen right. in America, but it was, it was entertaining. But I usually don't watch things that are closely related to my profession. I just stay away from that. I just want to see other worlds when I'm watching something on Netflix or cinema. Makes sense. And then the final question is, qualifications aside, if you couldn't be a journalist, what job would you do? Oh, that's an interesting one. I like teaching, so I might have pursued that. Sure. Qualifications aside. So, I mean, you could be a, a footballer if you wanted. <laughs> but, oh, I could uh, be a footballer if I wanted. Oh, that's a really good one then. Um, <laughs> I think I would like to be a yoga teacher. Okay, cool. Very chilled out. Your work-life balance would be excellent, I'm sure. Yeah, that's the theme for January for me. <laughs> Okay, great. Well, thanks so much for taking the time to talk to me, Diksha. How, how do you feel about how do you feel about it? Uh, happy with how the interview went? Yeah, I really enjoyed it. I think it made me think about a few things that you pushed me to think about certain aspects of my career that I had not thought of in a while. So I, I enjoyed this interview quite a lot. Great. Well, uh, thanks again. That's our show. Thanks for listening to my conversation with Diksha Madok, the India editor for Quartz. I'll post links to some of Diksha's work and other things we talked about in the podcast description and also on our show page, foreignpod.podbean.com. If you like the show, please subscribe to it in Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, YouTube, or wherever you get your podcasts. And please leave it a five-star review. Beyond that, it would be a huge help if you also write out a positive review saying what you like about the show. It helps get the podcast more attention. You can find us on Twitter at, at @foreignpod or tweet about us with the hashtag, hashtag foreignpod. On Facebook, our page is facebook.com slash foreignpod. Above all, if you know someone who might like the podcast, please recommend it to them. 
The show is produced and edited by me. Our music is a track called Love Chances by Makai Beats. There's more information on that in the podcast description and on our show page. Please look for the next episode to be posted on Sunday, February 23rd. Until then, I'm Jake Spring, and this is Foreign Correspondence. Correspondence.